Would you join with me? I was just thinking as we were singing that last song that, um, that how sweet it is that when we approach God's Word, it is the smiling face of Jesus is the one who is ministering to us today. Not the frowning face that ultimately says, there's so much wrong with you, you've got to get yourself together, but the smiling face that says, I've done all that is necessary for you to receive my grace. Now receive it from my word. So let's ask his blessing on his word preached. Will you pray with me? God, I would, I would pray that the thing that we would leave here with is a sense of your power and your favor. Your grace towards us in our sin. For your judgment has been satisfied at the cross, and from the cross of Jesus crucified comes all of the life that we need. So, by your Spirit, teach us from your life-giving Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining with us, if you're visiting with us, we are uh, working our way through John's Gospel. It's sort of our regular pattern to work our way through books of the Bible. It's just simple philosophy for us, commitment for us as a church, because that's the way God's Word was given to us, was in books. And so we work our way through, as often as we can, books of the Bible. And believe this, that Christianity is an experiential faith, right? To be a follower of Jesus means to experience Jesus. He is a person. He is a person who is present. He was a person who his disciples ministered. And Peter says to us that we have something. And Peter, you'll remember, experienced Jesus personally in very favorable ways, even seeing him when he was transfigured on um, the mountain, seeing him in his glory. And Peter says, look, I saw that. I experienced God in that way. And let me tell you something. We have something more sure for you to experience in the true written word of God. So Christianity, Jesus, is, is, is meant to be experienced. In our circles, in our theological tradition, um, you know, we tend to be overly intellectual at times. And I've fallen into this trap so often. But you know, that's not always been the case. It's not always been the case that, that our theological tradition has been so intellectually heavy, right? The Puritans, when you read them, they've got a bad rap in, in history for being, you know, the, the dour, staid people who are almost emotionless, who, you know, had no fun. But when you read them, they're just so full of teaching us how to experience the life of Jesus, to experience Jesus so deep in our souls that it produces joy, right? Um, to experience them in such a way it produces life. Jonathan Edwards, who, who read his sermons, right? He, he was so stale in the pulpit that he would just read his sermons. It was just a deep introvert who would read his sermons um, almost word for word, word for word. It's a lecture format, right? It says this about true religion. True religion, and revival broke out under that really boring preaching. Revival broke out in New England. And, and Edward says this, when revival is breaking out, this is what true religion is. True religion in a great part consists of holy affections, feelings, experiences of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is telling us here. He's telling us to come and drink so that we could experience true refreshment, to experience his presence in ways that bring refreshment to our soul. 
water brings life. And life, when it's refreshed, has the experience of joy. I love Tennessee after the rain. You've probably heard me say this a thousand times. Everything turns so deeply alive and green after the rains. It's almost as if the the plants are singing from a deep life within themselves because the water has brought refreshment and it's caused it to spring to life again. Joy and life go together when water comes down. Water is the most necessary element of our lives. Our bodies are made up of 60% of water. You can go weeks without food, so I hear. Um, I'm about three minutes, uh, but I hear you can go weeks without food, but a few days without water and you will die. But when you drink of Jesus, not just know about him, not just assent to truths about him, but to actually know and experience him, it is as if your parched soul begins to dance within you in the midst of life, broken and fallen world. Here's what's going on in John chapter 7. Up until this point, opposition has been increasing for Jesus. And as we have seen in the weeks past, as opposition increases because he is claiming to be God in the flesh, and the Jewish leadership is quite offended at this and are seeking to kill him, he doesn't hide those claims. He only becomes bolder and clearer in those claims. And because of that, he's been ministering to the north and in Galilee, away from the Jewish center of Jerusalem. But now, another feast is at hand, a feast of booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Jesus ventures down into Jerusalem, where he is going to stay for the rest of John's gospel until he dies. And because this conflict has arisen, he is first goes down incognito, right? He's just celebrating the Feast of Booths. But in verse 32, Uh, Where we picked up today, we're told that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about Jesus. And so they send out officers to arrest him. We're marching closer to the cross. And then in verse 37, as conflict has arisen, as an arrest warrant is sent out. In verse 37, Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and says very broadly and publicly. And he cries out and and we hear cry, we might be tame. The, the Greek here is he's, he's yelling this out. It's a bold proclamation. He's bellowing deep from with his soul. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's standing in the midst of the, of the temple announcing, it's ushering. This is going to be the event that brings his death even more closer. So he's a true refreshment. But notice how he quenches our thirst. He quenches it with himself. And it's, it's an open invitation that's very broad. He's announcing to anyone who's there and anyone who's here today, if anyone thirsts, it's the only qualification for finding the refreshment that your soul longs for. If you're thirsty, it's not if you're thirsty and you've You've gotten your act together and you've gotten your life right. Then you can come and drink and be satisfied. If you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, you don't have your act together. You're parched in your soul. If anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. You may just be checking out Jesus. And it really is easy to think, I, I need to, I really need to get my act together and become a Christian. 
That reverses the order. No, you need to come to Jesus. And he's the one who gets your act together by pouring himself into you. Here's what's interesting to validate this claim, because if you're really thinking through this, you're like, if Jesus can satisfy in this way, what proof does he have? Why does he, why does he think amongst all of the people that he can satisfy the thirsty soul? And so here's what he says. As the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's appealing to the Bible. Here's the thing. You won't find that passage anywhere in your Bible. And what Jesus is doing here is he's he's teaching us how to read the scriptures in ways that bring satisfaction to our soul because what he's doing is he's picking up all these different threads that run throughout the Old Testament, the Bible that was before him, and he's taking them and picking up their loose ends and tying them to himself. This is important to understand. It's important to understand how we read our Bible in ways that bring refreshment. We should be reading our Bible in ways that we are seeing Jesus on every page. But it also tells us that in the mind of Jesus, that this is one continual story. This is not one story in the Old Testament and one story in the New Testament. This is one continual story. It's 66 different books of the Bible written by 40 different authors over thousands of years from a variety of different cultural influences on three different continents and yet tell one story about Jesus because he's not only the source of refreshment, but God has written his word as the ultimate author. God, the Holy Spirit, has written through all of these men, through all of these cultures, one story of his redeeming work that are all those threads tied to Jesus Christ. And so the first thread that he picks up is that we are built for God's refreshing presence. See, the theme of water bringing refreshment doesn't start later in the Bible. It starts on the first pages when God created the Garden of Eden. It was like a small localized garden. Think if you've seen a castle with gardens surrounding it. This was the Garden of Eden was God's kingly castle's garden. And he put Adam and Eve into it and they were to keep it and spread that garden throughout the whole world. But from God's kingly presence garden came a river. And that river flowed from God's presence and watered the entire earth, causing the entire earth to spring forth life. And it symbolized that God was the true source of life. And one of the great tragedies of the fall, one of the great tragedies of sin entering into our own hearts and into this world is that we don't stop being thirsty. We stop Asking God to be the one who quenches that thirst. It symbolized from the very beginning, God, we are created to have our souls drink deeply on the refreshing presence of God. And we don't stop being thirsty. Now, as Jeremiah says, for my people have committed two evils. Here's what they've done. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sex, pleasure, work, 
just digging our own cisterns, seeking to quench the thirst of our parched souls. And so here's what God promises to do. God promises to restore his people to the living water of himself. And so after Israel goes into exile, God promises restoration uh, to Israel. I'm going to restore you back to the life-giving presence of myself. And so in Ezekiel 47, there's a picture of a temple. And from the new temple flows water. It begins as just a trickle. But the further you go out, it's watering the entire world. And the desert land that Israel was living in is now flowing and beaming with life. Because from God's presence flow the life-giving waters that makes dead areas spring to redemptive life. Now Jesus is standing on the temple steps. And he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. For whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see what he says? Look all, I am God's redeeming, refreshing presence that has been built, lost, restored. Come to me. There's a second thread that he picks up. Not only is God's presence refreshing, but God's refreshing presence brings joy. This is happening during the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Israel... I'm always amazed. I kind of want to go back and live in ancient Israel just for a few days. Because they, they, were, they were a partying bunch, right? They celebrated all the time. We read in Deuteronomy 16 that there was a feast of weeks. It was the beginning of the harvest. At the end of the harvest was the feast of booths. That's where Jesus has come down, the feast of tabernacles. It was a, it was a joyous time of feasting together and living in tents for a week to remember the time that Israel lived in the booze and tents during the exodus every time or once every year they'd get together and throw a big party and live in tents it was like maybe a tamed down version of Bonnaroo I guess less glamping and more and more sobered feasting together but nonetheless they were living in booths during this time of celebration and it was an important time it was a feast of the harvest Israel lived in booths. It happened probably just a little bit after and right now in September, late September, early October when the, when the olive harvest would come in and Israel would carry around branches in one hand and, and fruit in the other hand because God had been bountiful to them and blessed them richly. And it's calling to mind for them not only God's joyous bounty that he gives, and you can imagine these branches, these as their palm branches and myrtle branches, as they're shaking, reminding them of rain. That God brings refreshment. But there was a last act during this festival. Every day, the, the priest would go down to the spring that came into the city of Jerusalem, and he would fill up a pitcher, looking you know, about the size of a growler. He'd fill up a pitcher, and he'd bring it back to the temple, and he'd pour it out on the on the altar, and on the last day, the great day of the feast, he would do this seven times. And you see this water festival, that this ceremony was a reminder to Israel, not only of God's refreshing presence, 
but it was a hope that future refreshment would come because the fall would be dry, but the winter would need to be wet if they were going to have a harvest for the next year. And so Jesus says, they're pouring out this water on the last day of the feast. You can hear his cry in a different context. He stands in the in the temple mount as the priests are pouring out the water of God's refreshment and he cries out with a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. I'm going to bring refreshment that brings spiritual life into you. You'll, you'll bear fruit for years to come if you drink from me. I will not only satisfy, but my satisfying precious presence will bring joy that bears fruit in your life the last thread that he picks up actually there's probably another thread that he's picking up in the exodus theme because you'll remember israel um, god fed or gave them nourishment from a rock that was struck that's probably another thread the last thread that he's picking up is israel's future hope Israel was looking forward to what they called the last days. The last days for Israel were a day when God would come and, and, and bring in the nations of the world. Water in, in, these, in, these, in this theme, these last days themes, is God is putting the world back together again. Israel saw the world this way. There was creation, fall, redemption. God's coming and he's going to put the world back together again. And in these end times, Jesus is announcing they've begun. And in Zechariah 14, this is the promise. On that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half of the waters to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. The Lord will be king of all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And so you hear Jesus now standing up and picking up the thread and saying, look, these days have begun. God has begun a work of redemption and restoration, and the nations are going to flood to me. And if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And you see, just after Jesus' death, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and his spirit is poured out on the church in the days of Pentecost. And what do you hear? Tongues languages from all over the world being spoken but them understanding each other as the nations literally came to Jesus and you see that's what he's doing he's tying all of these threads to himself and saying I'm going to bring you refreshment but in a very particular way because the water of refreshment that he is promising is the Holy Spirit verse 39 John gives us a note so we can understand what Jesus means when he says in verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He mansplains to us. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit has not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is to be experienced. To know Jesus is to experience Jesus, to experience him not just intellectually, but to experience him deep within your soul. And so he's given his Holy Spirit to bring the refreshment that we need. But let's be honest, there are times, if you've walked with Jesus for a long period of time, there are times when it is just dry. 
and the Lord seems so far away, and your soul seems so stuck into patterns of hopelessness and despair, patterns of sin that have reoccurred and reoccurred, and God seems so far away. And you see our call to worship this morning from Psalm 42 came out of one of those experiences of God's people. One of the priests was experiencing one of those times when he cries out as the deer pants for flowing streams. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God. How do you reconcile that experience with the promise of Jesus that his spirit will bring refreshment when we're thirsty? We need to understand in those moments especially, but in all moments, how the spirit brings refreshment. So that we don't go digging for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water so we can keep drinking from the well. We need to understand how is the Spirit going to bring refreshment because that will set our expectations. So let me give us four things of how the Spirit refreshes us. First, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is living water. Living water. And so the Spirit is going to give us an internal experience that brings refreshment. But how the Spirit works uniquely is to refresh us deep in our hearts. If Jesus is outside of us, Jesus, by His Holy Spirit, is now inside of God's people. Now, children, what's better, ice cream in the refrigerator or ice cream in your belly? Amen, sister. And so how can we know we're having an experience of the, of the Holy Spirit, which is really the question, how, how, what is his role in redemption? What it, why has God sent him into the world? What is he going to do? Again, it sets expectation. And you can't separate these two. You can't separate the Spirit as God from God's work of redemption. If you take the Spirit out of the mission of God, if you take Him out of the context of His relationship to the other members of the Trinity, you get a lot of dysfunctional spirituality. And dysfunctional spirituality is like a ship veering just a little bit off course. If you set out from, you know, if you set out from Los Angeles thinking, I'm going to take a ship to Hawaii, and then you set a little bit off course and you end up in Antarctica... You're not only going to be disappointed, but your expectations are going to be shot. You're like, where are all the palm trees? I was just a little bit off course. And just when you separate the spirit from the from the work of God's mission overall, you're just going to end up instead of being in the Hawaii of God's refreshing presence, you're going to be in Antarctica, cold and destitute and hopeless, wondering where is this. The Spirit's destination, His true north, where He's taking us, is to know and experience more of the finished work of Christ. The Spirit comes from the crucified Savior. He empowered the crucified Savior, and He's making the crucified Savior known to us. 
which means even in times of drought, the Spirit is working. Even those times when he feels so far away, he is working. Many times of, of, of drought when there's no fruit on the trees and it seems so, and the leaves are just falling off. You know what, what's happening in that moment is that tree is sending down its roots deep into the ground. And sometimes the Spirit works by withdrawing a sense of God's presence, even as God is present by His Spirit. And the second thing the Spirit does is He creates a thirst. He gives us an experience of Jesus because He's living waters by creating a thirst that only Jesus can satisfy. And He's going to do this by bringing conviction of sin in our lives. This is the experience of God throughout the Bible. Whenever God is experienced by people, people want to know Him, they have an experience with Him, they often don't have words to say, they can't explain it, but what they do say is this, Isaiah experienced this vision, and he falls on his face, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord. This is what happens when the Spirit is present. He convicts of sin. So that we'll stop trusting in ourselves. This frame is too feeble to try to build a righteousness for myself. And so the Spirit says, I'm going to create a thirst by convicting you of your sin so that you'll flee to the cross of Jesus crucified for your sins. You'll flee to the cross and receive his righteousness and it will satisfy. And the things of this world will no longer quench the thirst when I convict you of sin. Whenever true revival has moved throughout this world, the church has been built. The gates of hell will not prevail, but is always with deep conviction of sin. And people weeping in the pews with pain for this and joy. Joy is the other fruit of true revival where the Spirit shows up. God can't do this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done what I could never do for myself. Third thing to understand to set our expectations, the Holy Spirit proceeds from Jesus. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, most commentators, this can be read one of two ways, depending on a punctuation. Original Greek has no punctuation, so you have to translate it. It can either be read as out of the believer flows fountains of living water or out of Jesus, out of him. Who's the him? Out of him, out of his heart. And the context, I think, really hammers home the point that this is out of Jesus flows the living water. Because verse 39, the Spirit now, as John explains this to us, has not yet been given because Jesus has not yet been glorified. Uh, but when Jesus is glorified, here's the context, the Spirit will pour out from him. And Jesus has referenced his death in the previous verses. The Holy Spirit comes from Jesus. 
This is a work of Jesus to earn him for us. And the Spirit comes from Jesus to bring us back to Jesus. He's like a mother who goes out to find her lost children to bring them home to the family dinner. The Spirit doesn't give us an experience of himself. He gives us an experience of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 14. He, speaking of the Spirit, will glorify me. He won't glorify himself, he'll glorify me. And by the context here, Jesus has made his point throughout John's gospel. My point is to glorify the Father. The Spirit's job is to glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Here's how you know the Spirit is working. Because he proceeds from Jesus to bring us back to Jesus, to make us fall more in love with Jesus. The Spirit is given, fourthly, and this is important, Because Jesus is glorified. The Spirit had not yet been given to God's people at this point in John's gospel, he says, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And in John's gospel, that is a direct reference to the death of Jesus on the cross. And in John chapter 14, he says, look, if I go, I'll send to you another helper, another one who is like me. That's, and then the word another is important there. He's going to be another one like me, like I was to you. He'll be your helper. He will continue my ministry after I go, when I have taken the path of my glory, which is to die your death on the cross for your sins, to atone for your sins, so that you could be a cleansed temple of God. Then I'll pour out my spirit. If you have been cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ, You have the Spirit of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. And flesh and Spirit here is a contrast, not of the body and a a non-bodily state, but of the the flesh, the broken, fallen, sin-cursed world. You're not in that anymore. That's not the realm you live in. You're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Well, how do you know if the Spirit dwells in you? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of Christ's righteousness. There's no second work of redemption. There's no no pattern that you have to fall to sort of get the Spirit poured out on you. If you have belonged to Jesus, if you've given yourself to Jesus, if you've said, I'm thirsty, I want to drink, He gives you His Spirit at that moment. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means I am united to Jesus by his spirit. He and I are one. What's true about him is true about me because the spirit has united us together. And you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And because of Christ is in you by his spirit, That internal enemy of sin is being dealt with by the resurrection power of the glorified Christ. Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit comes from Jesus because he is glorified and he's taken up residence in us. He's, he's done so to make us more like Jesus. And being more like Jesus, we drink deeply from the wells of God's presence. 
For this is the promise from Isaiah 43. For I will pour water on the thirsty lands and streams on the dry ground. And I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And you know, as we come to the table, the spirit is present here to take these ordinary elements and cause us to feed on Jesus. He's come from the throne and is present here to take us through to the throne that we might feed on the life-giving waters that satisfies and brings joy. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we, um, oh, we're so, so thankful that you, that you went to the springs of living water, gave us the Spirit, for we are drinking from cesspools. So refresh us on Jesus as we come to the table, that our parched souls might enjoy the blessing of Isaiah promised the dry stream beds might spring to life, even to our children. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.